This is here at Riverside Church, and it is just uh, wonderful to see you all here this morning. And it's great to be able to uh, share with you from God's Word. A question uh, to start us off with, how many of you have ever told a lie? Some of you are lying, because <laughs> your hands are not going up. <laughs> All right, how many of you are still keeping that lie going? Oh, okay. Maybe you weren't ready for that one. It's okay, you don't have to put your hands up, I understand. How many of you have been on the receiving end of a lie? Okay, a lot of hands are going up. Uh, How much pain is there in being lied to? Right, this is something that we've all uh, experienced and, and journeyed with. But uh, thinking about lying is quite interesting uh, because I have taught my kids to lie. Right, uh, I live in a plot. Uh, this uh, small holding, we've got large stretches of uh, fence. And so we have had to establish some protocol with them if a stranger comes to the fence, because they like to go exploring and they ride their bikes and, you know, uh, what do you do if somebody comes to the gates and says, is dad at home? And I'm not. You know, we have uh, taught them how to lie for their own safety, right? Uh, how many of you had it drilled into you growing up when you still had those like dial-up phones? If a man asked, are your parents at home? What do you do? Right? That was drilled into me uh, with such uh, intensity by my parents uh, that I was convinced it would happen more times than the never amount of times. A stranger called my home asking if my uh, parents were home. So if your children ever, uh, if you ever wonder where your kids kind of learned to lie, really it starts with us. But now it's interesting because we understand that there's pain in lying and uh, we've been caught up in that but we've also understood that in certain contexts we have to teach people to lie for their own safety Uh, but then there's um, uh, white lies you know uh, again um, I'll just say there was an adult close to me in my life uh, that I once caught them out in a lie and went, oh, it's not so bad, it's a white lie. How many of you have ever, you know, had somebody tell you, it's not so bad, it was a white lie? Right, a couple hands are going up. You know, and, and what about the situations where we are forced to lie? Right, husbands, boyfriends, you know this. Uh, we experience this, uh, yeah, you understand where I'm going with this, right? Do you like my new haircut? You have no choice. Uh, honey, it's lovely. Do you like this new recipe I've tried? Delicious. Do you like my mother? She's wonderful. And of course, the one, uh, the most famous one of all is, do these pants make my bum look fat? There is no way to answer that question truthfully. You know, I once uh, was at a funeral for a guy who answered, it's not the pants that make your bum look fat, but all the chocolates that you eat. <laughs> you know, and, and so uh, lying sometimes becomes not this uh, kind of black and white thing, but uh, can be gray because I wonder if you found yourself doing sympathy lying. And what I mean by that is where you exaggerate some of what you have been going through 
uh, to garner sympathy from the people around you. How was your week? Hectic. You're so busy. You know, playing Xbox or, you know, I don't know. But we sometimes increase and exaggerate uh, so that people kind of might feel sorry for us. And how we can sometimes lie with a bit of um, honor in us because we feel we're lying uh, to not hurt the people's feelings that we're speaking to. And so we can kind of walk away going, I'm glad I did that to spare them from some hurts. And it's amazing how we can kind of get caught up in something and not maybe see what it is doing to us in our culture. It's amazing because it's through this whole series that we've been kind of speaking uh, and and touching on some of the superhero culture uh, that has captured the world so much. Almost every superhero lives a righteous life of duplicity. That uh, by day, they are one person. They act as one person. They go by one name, one job, one set of behavior. Then by night, they don on the, the superhero costume and the mask and they live a completely different life. And we love it. We pay lots of money to watch uh, people live lives of duplicity. But I wonder again how true that is for all of us. That potentially here today, you are living one life. Maybe you've donned the costume of a Christian and even bringing your superhero apparel of your Bible and kind of speaking the Christian language that you've adopted, you know, banking a few favorite verses. But the rest of your life, you live a totally different uh, life completely where there is a different persona in how you behave at, at work, how you engage with work colleagues, how you treat your staff. Or maybe it's that you're one person at work and a totally different person even at home. I was told a story uh, by an older pastor friend of mine of a funeral that he was at. And uh, this husband, his uh, wife had passed away. It was her funeral. And there were some eulogies that were spoken, some lovely words were shared about this woman all the way up to uh, the burial site where the coffin was lowered into the ground and people had an opportunity to then put something uh, into the coffin before uh, she was fully buried. And there was shock and horror when the husband walked up to the coffin with a brick and stoned the coffin and went good riddance and stormed off. quite an intense story and he said you knew her as one woman but I endured her as a completely different woman when no one else was around Uh, that is some of the trauma that can come with uh, living a life of deception or being uh, having uh, or behaving one way in one place behaving another way in another place and uh, lying and Uh, Living a life of duplicity. There's a movie that uh, came out in the late 90s called Liar Liar. The kind of the context of the movie is there's a a sleazebag dad who lies all the time and his family has borne uh, the brunt of uh, all his lies. 
On his son's birthday, his son makes a wish as he blows out the candles. And his wish is, I wish my dad uh, would not tell a lie for the next 24 hours. His wish comes true. And the dad is unable to make a single lie. He is uh, compelled to tell the full truth, uh, no matter what is asked of him, in no matter what situation. I wonder if that was true for us, even for 24 hours, that it would be impossible for us to even speak even a hint of a mistruth. Uh, any shade or degree of lying, being it a white lie or any lie, uh, how nervous we would be to step into that reality even for 24 hours. And I love the word uh, integrated because what comes after that is integrity because I think that is the opposite of duplicity. That. What Jesus is desiring for all of us is that what he has done for us and the grace that we have received in him permeates every aspect of our life. That even if we are uh, struggling to get to grips with our faith and what it means to be a believer, that how we treat our staff is how we treat our wives and our children. And uh, how forthright we are in, or how we behave in one area is exactly the same as how we behave in another area. But, but that is through the lens of I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, that I've been set free from sin, that I'm saved by grace. Not living uh, these compartmentalized, maybe double lives where we're one person in this place, one person in another place. And so living our lives with deception. And so as we've been doing through the series, we've been encouraging uh, get real moments where we can, uh, in vulnerability, take the mask off and allow the Lord in. And it's wonderful that we're going to be having communion later, uh, but that is where we're going to be uh, having this time. And I'm encouraging you already as we're going uh, through this this morning that you start to prepare yourself. Uh, for a get real moment with the Lord where you can be vulnerable with him uh, about any deception that you are carrying in your life. Be it once off, be it continual, be it that uh, you are different people in different places in your life. But I'm really trusting that the Lord is going to meet you uh, today as you then go into a time of confession and repentance and praying prayers of faith to uh, continue living a life where it is integrated and your faith uh, just sits your life and the course of your life. So there is no longer duplicity. And as we've been doing this, we've been looking at uh, characters of the Bible to kind of help us unpack uh, this mask. And so why don't you grab your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 25. Uh, it's uh, the first book of the Bible. So you can find it quite near the beginning. Uh, Genesis 25. Uh, there's a lot of context and kind of a story and backstory uh, to this. And so we're going to pick up Genesis 25 and verse 26 through to 28. And this is um, the story and the starting of the story of Jacob and Esau. So when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first came out was red, 
and his whole body was like a hairy garment. And so they named him Esau. I just love how descriptive scripture can be, right? After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So they named him Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. I hope that is not a prophecy for some of you this morning. So Jacob, meaning grasping at his heel. Now again, that might seem strange, but it just was a Hebrew idiom or figure of speech that meant deception. And what a way to start out your life being named after a figure of speech that means, literally means deception. And what started for Jacob and Esau uh, was a life between two brothers that was characterized uh, by lies, deceit, deception, and a lot of pain. And some of you here today know the pain that comes from uh, deception within your own family. And that is a burden and a pain that some of you have lived a very long time with. Where it started first with Jacob and Esau was how Jacob tricked his brother into giving him his birthright. Now in ancient culture, things like being the firstborn was a very big deal. Uh, what you received as your firstborn was the birthright from your father and his blessing. In this case, it was very real because uh, Jacob and Esau's grandfather was Abraham. And Abraham had a major covenant with the Lord. So you had Abraham, you had Isaac, then these twin boys, Jacob and Esau. Esau should have inherited the birthright and the blessing of his father. Jacob managed to get the birthright from uh, his brother. And when his dad was dying, he managed to trick his dad into giving him his blessing over his older brother Esau. The way he did it was in deception. Again, Esau was a very hairy man. And so what Jacob had to do was actually kind of wrap uh, goat skins uh, around his arms and his neck to make the lie uh, a, a, a thing to pass uh, by his dad. So he makes his dad some food. His dad's like, I'm getting old. I need to give you my blessing. I need to pass that on to you. He's like, here, dad. He's like, you don't sound like Esau. And so he comes to his dad and his dad kind of rubs these goat's hair arms. And it's like, ah, you Esau. I mean, how hairy do you have to be? <laughs> but what then happens is Jacob steals his father's blessing. And God honors the blessing that Jacob gives or Isaac gives to Jacob. Esau is very upset at what happens. And Jacob leaves. Uh, there is now no longer peace between these two brothers. And in fact, Jacob flees. <coughs> and he flees and it's almost 20 years before they are going to see each other again. And again, some of you know what it's like to not speak to a family member uh, for 20 years, sometimes even longer. During that time, uh, Jacob encounters the Lord uh, in, in, in a number of different ways. The Lord does bless Jacob. Jacob goes through a number of heart transformations. But he still has these huge deceptions uh, that uh, follow him. Again, the Lord forgives sin. 
But some sin comes with a number of big consequences that follow us for large parts of our life. One day the Lord says to Jacob, I need you to go back to the land that I've promised uh, to you. He's fled his country. He's living in a different country, but now he has to go back. The Lord has commanded him to go back uh, to uh, the land of his forefathers and in that he knows that he has to face Esau. He has to face up to his deception. He's really nervous about this. Again, some of us can relate to this as we've had to own up to, confess deception, face up to the pain that we have caused people in our lives. He plans a bit of a strategy. Jacob thinks, what is the best way for me to encounter my brother? Uh, I think secretly is hoping 20 years surely must have been enough time for some of his anger um, to be uh, kind of... Uh, abated. And so he sends word. He sends a messenger ahead. We're coming. Uh, we're going to be meeting you. A messenger comes back and he says, your brother's going to meet you and he's bringing 400 men with him. If he thought that any, uh, he was born red, so maybe that has something to do with what uh, Jacob is thinking. 400 men. That is enough for him to wipe us out. If I thought that 20 years had uh, suppressed his anger somewhat, maybe I'm wrong. He's coming with 400 men. We are in trouble. Think about being caught between a rock and the hard place. The Lord has spoken to him and commanded him to go back to the land he promised uh, his forefathers and his brother who he deceived is meeting him there with 400 men. That's a kind of a tough place to be in. So again, he thinks through his strategy. Okay, I'm going to split my family in half. If he attacks, only half my family is going to be killed and the other half have time to run away. That's literally the place he's in with his brother coming with 400 men. Then he goes, okay, the Lord has blessed me. I'm nice and wealthy. Let me send him in a kind of a staggering procession. I'm going to lavish gifts of animals on him. Maybe that can kind of soften the blow and maybe we're going to be spared. And so as he's preparing to meet his brother, he sends over some sheep and he sends over some goats and he sends over some camels. But he still has to face up to his brother with 400 men. So he knows he's going to see his brother the very next day. He's kind of done everything he can. He's sent over some gifts. His family's split. They know what they're going to do. Even the servants are kind of going to, going to go ahead of him. And in case the attack comes, servants are going to die first before his children and his wives. And then we pick up the story in Genesis uh, 33. 32. Genesis 32 from verse 22 says, That night Jacob got up, took his two wives, his two maidservants, his 11 sons, and he crossed the ford of Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. And so Jacob was left alone. And I can get that. 
If you're facing that level of angst, if you are, uh, you know, you've actually had to split your family so that maybe half survives this encounter, I can get that as a man. I would probably also want to be alone and kind of gather my thoughts. And then possibly this very next verse is maybe one of the stranger verses in the whole of the Bible. It says, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. So he sent everything across the ford. Everything is ready to kind of journey to meet Esau. He is alone on this side of the stream. And it just says, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. And I was kind of pondering upon this. Like, how does that even happen? Like, when did he see him coming? Where did he come from? How did the wrestling match start? Uh, Did he just like tackle Jacob and then they just start wrestling? Did he adopt a wrestling pose? Were there some kind of guidelines that were set out? It's kind of like nothing given except that they just wrestled all through the night. Uh, He's not a young guy. I mean, you think of some of the lengthy uh, tennis matches that have taken place in the last few days, like six hours of tennis. These guys were tired. They're going 12 hours all through the night. These guys are wrestling without a break. It goes on, verse 25. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then uh, uh, the man said, let me go for his daybreak. They've gone all through the night, 12 hours of wrestling. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Then the man asked, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. The man said to him, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and you have overcome. And Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called that place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. At some point during this encounter, Jacob realized that he was wrestling with God. Now, uh, we call this uh, kind of thing a Christophany, uh, where uh, Jesus appears before his time in the Gospels. Uh, there are a couple of moments throughout the Old Testament. Uh, think about John 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, uh, the Word was God, the Word was with God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. There are moments when Jesus appears. God in flesh uh, with his people. This is maybe one of those uh, moments. Jacob is potentially facing his biggest crisis where he has to face up to his life of deception. He stole his brother's birthright and stole his blessing from his father and has been a part and lived that for 20 years. So much angst in him, again, that his family is split. He's trying to appease his brother with all of these gifts. And the Lord wrestles with him the night before that. I mean, he needs some strength, right? He might have to be fighting for his life. But God wrestles him all through the night and even wrenches his socket hip to make him more vulnerable. At some point, he realizes that this is God. And so the intensity in him increases by saying, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And he realizes that in his biggest hour of need, in fact, in his desperation, 
and such a common theme uh, throughout Scripture that in his desperation, the Lord is there and he will not let the Lord go. That he realizes his hope is not in splitting his family. His hope is not in that all of these gifts are going to uh, suppress his brother's anger and bring him to a place of forgiveness. But that his hope is in that the Lord will bless him. It's amazing how he's even more vulnerable in going to meet his brother. That he has to limp to his brother at the end of wrestling with the Lord all night. The story goes that his brother just falls down at him and says, my brother. And there's just such joy in his heart. He's like, what are all these gifts for? What are you doing? What is all of this stuff here? And there's just such a wonderful reuniting of two brothers. But what I love about the story is that what it reveals is that there is a deeper level of deception that I think all of us might live with. It's not that we live uh, lives of duplicity with people, but that we live it with God. And what I mean by that is Jacob tries to deal with the situation in his own strength by his own resources. He tries to save himself in the situation by sending gifts ahead that his brother um, might accept it as a sign of sorry and there is forgiveness. What God does in even hobbling Jacob is that we can do nothing without the Lord. And that for so many of us, the shock that we might find at the end of our lives is that we fooled ourselves into thinking that we were okay and we did not need Jesus. That we go through our lives thinking, actually, I'm not so bad. I'm not really a bad person. How can I be so sinful that I needed someone to die on my behalf? I'm a well-to-do person. I'm respected in my community. I've made it in my life. People love me. How can I, me, need Jesus so desperately that it's gonna save my life at the end of the day? Not need saving from, everything, from anything my whole life. That's the danger in the mark of deception or the mask of deception. That we deceive others because we don't maybe like what's going on in us. We tell lies to maybe spare people or to not have people think about who we truly are. We create these different lives and different, um, different lives for different parts of our life. But I wonder if that's not rooted in a deeper deception. God, I say I believe in you, but I live my life and believe that I don't really need you. Because I keep on doing things in my own strength. I keep on uh, trying to make plans for my own life. Yet deep down, we've never actually said, Jesus, I am desperate for you. I will not let you go. You are my only hope in this life. If you think about this, there was someone's wrath, the wrath of his brother, 400 men. Jacob did actually uh, possibly deserve to die or face the full consequences for the wrath of his brother. You and I faced the full wrath of God. We deserved his full wrath. Here, Jacob wrestles with God uh, all through the night. Isn't it interesting that Jesus wrestled all through the night before he faced the wrath of God on our behalf? 
And we are spared God's wrath because of how Jesus wrestled with God and we are blessed because of that. And I think we can finally come to terms with the duplicity in all of our lives that we all live with. And we, when we actually kind of come back to that place of going, God, if it was not for your grace, I am hopelessly lost. If it was not for your death on the cross in my place, I have no hope in this life. The most successful people, most loved people in this world face an eternity without God if they do not surrender their lives fully to Jesus. Fortunately, uh, we are able to come to that place and say, Jesus, I cannot save myself. Save me. And it's in that moment that we can start to have grace permeate every part of our lives. If we cannot be honest with the Lord and say, I need you. I cannot do life without you. I need you to save me. We're never going to be free uh, from the mask of deception. Because our very lives at an identity level are a lie. Thinking we're okay, yet facing an eternity without God. Living a life without Christ. No hope of the gospel. And I want to encourage you, when we go to communion, search deep within yourself. Ask yourself that very uh, raw, real question. God, have I been playing church? Am I here because it's made my parents happy? Am I here to appease my spouse? Have I acted like a believer and have I maybe kind of just played the part and ask yourself the question and if you realize you know what I'm doing life on my own and I have not surrendered my life to Jesus you have a wonderful moment as we celebrate how he went on our behalf and met the wrath of God and died the death we should have died And we receive the blessing of his forgiveness and our salvation. I want to just touch quickly on uh, on lives that you have been living. I think you need to think very um, clearly on this because what can happen is maybe the Lord has speaking to you about some deception that you have been carrying in your life. And it may be some deception that is going to hurt um, some people in your family if you tell them. Now the danger in this is that you can go and you could offload a whole bunch of deception. And feel the weight of finally having something off of your chest that you've carried with you for a very long time. And leave someone utterly broken as a result. Uh, What I'm not saying is carry on living a lie. What I am saying is think very clearly. Um, about uh, what it might mean to someone if you share with them some deception that you have carried with you in your life. If you feel that you need to confess that to someone in your life, you might really wound someone that you love dearly. What you and I can all do is, as I've said, is go back to that place of going, God, if it was not for your grace. And that's why I said when we go to communion now, We're going to have a time of getting real and confession is so important.
and let all of us come before the Lord and confess to him where we have lived uh, and, and acted with deception in our lives. Let us confess that sin. Let's repent of it, name it, ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you. If you need to take a number of minutes before you get to take communion, that is okay. And then once you have finished confessing, pray a prayer of faith and say, Lord, I want the gospel to permeate every aspect of my life. I want to live my life with integrity, not duplicity. I want to be a man of God in my business. I want to be a man of God in my home. I want to be a man of God in the sports field. I want to be a man of God at boys' night. I want to be a woman of God with my friends when we gather for book club, which is wine club. I want to be a a woman of God to uh, my children. I want to be a woman of God in the workplace. I want the gospel to impact and permeate every aspect of my life. And I want to live with integrity and honesty and truthfulness with my actions, with my words, and pray that in faith. Right, I'm gonna pray for us and then we're gonna go ahead into a time of communion and then I will close off for us. Father God, I wanna thank you for your grace. I wanna thank you that even though with Jacob uh, that lived his whole life marked with deception, that you still brought healing to him that by his grace there was a joyful reunion with his brother. And God, even as some people are busy thinking and processing uh, that, uh, that I pray, God, over everyone here, that there, if there has been a breakdown in family relations because of deception, that God, you would bring healing and bring healing that only you can. I want to thank you that you, brought God, that you brought Jacob to a place where his only hope was you. And thank you that in our lives, our only hope is you and you alone. God, when I think of how Jacob had to meet the wrath of his brother, Jesus, you went to meet the wrath of God. And because of that, I am saved. I want to thank you for that, Jesus. More than the Holy Spirit, I thank you that it's you that empowers us to live a life of faith and godliness. And so for all of us, as we confess where we have lived lives with deception, Lord God, that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would enable us to live in truth and in righteousness. That for us, duplicity would be replaced by integrity. And we thank you for this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Guys, I invite you to spend time before the Lord before you come and take communion. It's so important for us to remember and celebrate his death on the cross in our place for our sin and the new covenants, his blood poured out for us in the forgiveness of sin. Use this as this get real moment. Take the mask off. Deal with yourself before the Lord. Uh, repent and then enjoy his grace. 
And if you are not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, if this is something that you've never done before, I encourage you to pray a prayer and say, Jesus, I want uh, to accept what you have done for me. Uh, I I want to be uh, a Christian, as we call it. I I want to be in relationship with you. If you're a little bit confused maybe as to uh, how that looks or or what that looks like, I'm sitting here at the front with Steve. Come and chat to us, uh, and and then you can enjoy and take uh, communion with us. But as soon as you are ready, I encourage you uh, to do that. Thank you.